Welcome to Humans of Twitter, a podcast where we discover the stories behind the people behind the Twitter accounts, people that are interesting, opinionated, and surprising. I'm your host, Steve Malk, and today I'm speaking with someone who describes themselves as Deputy Editor of At Mumbrella News. I cover the world of media and marketing. Humans of Twitter is their stories in their words in a little more than 140 characters. Please welcome today's edition to the Humans of Twitter list, Nick Christensen. Good to be with you, Steve. Oh, look, it's good to have you all on board, Nick. In social settings, how do you introduce yourself? Oh, politics nerd, media geek, um, <laughs> bit of a combination of the two. You know, Netflix addict, um, these are all things about me. It feels weird being on this side of the questioning, to be honest with you. Well, it's always a good time for us to learn more about each other. If we don't ask questions, Nick, how are we ever going to find out? This is very true. This is very, very true. Are you doing what Nick in grade 11 thought you would be doing? Ah, oh, there's a question and a half. Um, yeah, I look, no, actually. Um, I was a massive politics geek all through kind of high school and uni, and it was only in my last year of um, uni I, I thought I'd go into government or be a, you know, some sort of policy bonk mm-hmm. or that sort of thing. And I did my honours thesis on um, the narratives of John Howard and Menzies and the Liberal Party, and it was this really obscure thing. I spent a whole year on it. And at the end of it, wow. I'm like, I can't just do one thing. Like it just drove me absolutely batty. And um, so I thought I'd try journalism and it was just an experiment. But um, turned out I actually really liked journalism and I like I, – I did an arts degree as my undergrad and it was basically just that that made me kind of go, I like studying new things. I like doing something new every day. And that was – well, basically I see journalism as a continuation of my arts degree in so much as, you know, every day I, I get to pick something new. And the great thing about – Media writing is you can pretty much cover anything you want and it's a media story because there's always a media angle to a lot of things that are going on in the world. Um, so that's why it's really fun. Um, from Umbrella, you know, we, we're at the heart of the media and marketing, particularly mm. the advertising discussion, and that's a really fascinating p- place to be at the moment because the whole industry is in, dare I say, turmoil or certainly flux. And um, so, yeah, I, it, it, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, is this what I would be, be what I thought I'd be doing with my life? The answer is no. Um, I sometimes joke that I became a media writer because someone else got pregnant when I was at <laughs> Australian, and then that is actually true. That literally, some there, there, there was a vacancy because they're like, "Lara's pregnant. How do you feel about a maternity leave contract?" And that was five or six years ago. Um, but at the same time, you know, this job gives gives you some really interesting privileges. You get to, you know, I've been to New York. I've gotten to cover some really interesting stuff, and you know, it's really it's always fun. It's always interesting, and I like that. As someone who is a political nerd, self-confessed, and and journalist, at time of recording, we've had an amazing five days (laughs) in politics and media. Yes. How did that push all of the buttons for you, or how did you manage to get through all of that, given you're focusing on media, but there's all this great politics stuff going on? Oh, look, I think think that's where it gets interesting, right, because there's always interesting dimensions. I mean, you know, right now I'm completely obsessed with um, who the new communications minister will be and how Mm. that will play out. Um, I actually watched it with quite a lot of interest, um, in part because if I hadn't taken this job, I think I probably would have taken a job as Arthur Sinodinus' press secretary. um, Wow. Um, Now, Arthur... I, you know, I, I don't know if I've been there when all this happened, but I did kind of look at it and go, you know, this was really interesting um, and it just really, you know, it did tick a lot of bo- boxes for me um, in terms of just, you know, watching the machinations and there's still a lot to come and, you know, I think that's more my politics degree going, will Turnbull be able to hold the right of the party and, you know, how will all this mm. play out? Um, I think it's interesting that we're already seeing leaks and things like that. So, um, yeah, definitely an interesting week in politics and also in the media because of that. 
Nick's own sliding doors moment. <laughs> there was a bit of that. Also, because today was the day you saw um, Scott Morrison and Ray Hadley um, go toe-to-toe. And um, <laughs> my first job in the media was as a producer for 2GB. And in particular, I worked a lot with Ray's show. And I, I was listening live when, the, when, when Scott Morrison couldn't find the Bible and I could just picture – um, Ray's producers going, where's the Bible? Why isn't that happening? You know, what's gone wrong? And, <laughs> and as a producer, you just go, oh, what's, what's going on there? So I, I love the intersection of where media and politics all comes together. That's a really, really interesting place. It's crazy. So who is going to be communications minister? <laughs> <laughs> There's about five different theories. I have no idea and I'm not going to predict it because I, by the time this actually goes to air, they'll name someone else and I'll be completely wrong. Given the change in leadership of the Liberal Party, we now have Prime Minister Turnbull. Mm. What what do you think that impact will be on something like the NBN or media laws around ownership and reach rule and those sorts of things? Um, I, I, I'm, my, my colleague Alex Hayes wrote a piece this week that said it's probably going to be too hard for them to actually do media reform um, in the next kind of year or so. The government doesn't have mm. enough political capital and I tend to agree with that. The, the, the challenge will be that Malcolm knows his policy area inside out. And so he may just choose to go ahead with it and, you know, just launch right in. Um, but, you know, this is while dealing with some very powerful people, you know, Rupert Murdoch and Kerry Stokes are standing very firmly in the way of any change and the government won't want to alienate two of the biggest media companies a year out mm-hmm. from an election. So I struggle to see what change will be able to happen. I think a lot of it will also depend on what communications minister they pick. If they go with someone like Arthur Sindinos, I think there's a much better chance um, of that. If they go with someone, you know, who's not as senior as someone like Arthur or Joe Hockey, then I think there's less chance of it happening. Communications Minister Wyatt Roy. (laughs) Wouldn't that be interesting? Someone who's the first communications minister who's not older than the internet. Mm, I know. Wow. (laughs) Oh, gosh. What do you do really well? Do you mean professionally? I mean however you interpret it. Uh, if, we're t- if we're still talking work, um, I think I listen really well and that's what makes me a good journalist. Um, so that's uh, – I'm not the best writer. I'm not the best, you know – it feels weird even doing a podcast with you. Um, <laughs> what I like is that I, I'm genuinely curious about people and that seems to make the basic attribute of being a good journalist because you're inquisitive and people listen and you're empathetic. Um more broadly, I don't know how to answer that. These questions are hard. They're meant to be probing to help you think <laughs> about things, Nick. What did everyone else say? I was listening to some of your other podcasts. They sound like- oh, a variety of things. I'm not funny like Corinne Grant. It's just not me. <laughs> it's all right. You set the bar so high with all the other important people. I'm- oh, rubbish. You're very important, Nick. <laughs> no, I'm not. So what do you do really well? <laughs> ah, this has me stumped. I'm really good at simplification. <laughs> like for me, that's a kind of like, stress relief on the weekend. Yeah. And I'm an introvert and the challenge of work, work and, you know, a lot of us, particularly number of long hours. And so, you know, we get to the weekend as an introvert, you just want the world to go away. So I, I, a lot of my kind of recreation time is either kind of reading and that's, you know, 
political geek media stuff, um, a lot of nonfiction, mm. obviously the newspapers every weekend. My partner's always like, do we have to buy all five newspapers? I'm like, yes, we have to buy all five newspapers and read them all. <laughs> um, otherwise, I can't function during the weekend. Um, and then, yeah, it's just about that downtime to actually do that. And, yeah, for me, it's kind of just, you know, zone out and take out, you know, invade Greece on the weekend to just kind of stress release. Really. So cool. <laughs> you talk um, about so dorky. No, it's great because I think this is this is part of the thing. We don't we don't really understand who people are and, and understanding a little bit. I mean it's a fair guess. As a media nerd, you like the media, so you're working in it. Um, you write well and you speak well, have considered opinions about politics. But to understand that you dig, you know, sim civilization, great. <laughs> That's so great. You mentioned before that uh, you've got a history as a producer, a uh, yes. radio producer. Mm. Was that uh, something you intentionally chased after or was that a happy accident? Oh, that's definitely an accident. Um, I was at uni. I just finished my politics degree and um, I was I worked through uni, um, funded my own kind of degree. Um, I was working at a mm. Telstra shop and um, a host came, a guy came in at, at, with his wife at um, – would have been like late on a Thursday night and I was working the late shift and his face looked really familiar. And I ended up selling him a phone. And then when I was doing the whole credit check thing, I was like, oh, okay, who are you? Da, da. What do you do? And he's like, oh yeah, my name's Jason Morrison. I work for Radio 2GB. And I was, <laughs> and, he, and Jason had just been in the headlines the week before and he was filling in for Alan Jones. And I did that typical thing of which you don't want to do as you know, journalism student of, oh my God, you're the Alan Jones fill in. I was so excited. And, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, there's a good start. Insult them and tell them they're a fill-in for someone else. Really great. Um, and anyway, I sold him a phone. And the long story short is that I also sold him on why I should be his intern for one show. That was six wow. seven years ago. And so I came in for one show. I managed to turn that into a weekly thing. And um, after about six months, they, you know, the funny thing is once you get your foot in the door, they're always looking for people to fill in and, you know, they're not looking for glory shifts. It was literally like midnight to dawn on weekends. And that was really where I started in the media. But I, I, do, the, I do the midnight to dawn call vetting shift and then it kind of started from there and then I'd work on Jason's show and then I'd become, a, you know, at 2GB, I've pretty much worked on every show imaginable. I became the main Ray Hadley fill-in producer for about three years. Um, so mm. um, when Rudd the Skillard the first time round happened, I was the one getting called in that day, you know, 4 a.m. going, we need an extra producer, just get in here now, like pay the cab, wow. just get here. Um, and Ray's one of, well, I'd say he's one of the best broadcasters in the country, uh, but he's also one of the most demanding mm. in terms of what he expects from his staff. And in my case, I became the fill-in because I could usually meet those demands. Um, and his team are just, you know, some of the best radio professionals in the country. And you, you, you know, it, I remember we talked about we're talking about the week that we've just had. I remember five, what, five years ago when um, it was when uh, Turnbull was rolled by Abbott, and the phones just went into meltdown, and you're getting 300 calls in three hours, and you're having to try and sort through all those calls. It's just it's the most unbelievable thing, and actually just being able to professionally do that and and to keep the show running is really hard. And yeah, I mean. I loved radio. Um, I did it for five or six years on the side. So um, up until what started this year, I was Bill Cruz's producer on the Sunday night religion show just because I liked that connection to, you know, middle Australia. I think, you know, particularly mm. as a media writer, um, I've always been very aware of, you know, there's the bubble that can be the media and Twitter and these sort of things. And I always liked hearing what, you know, a different part of Australia thought about the political dynamic or the media dynamic or what was going on in the world. It, it kind of kept me a bit grounded to 
a broader media discussion. So I always enjoy that. Plus, I just love talkback radio. It's one of the most interactive and interesting mediums around. Are you a person of faith? Um, yes and no. I am Lutheran by background because um, my parents were born in Denmark. I was born in Denmark and we moved over here when I was two. Um, wow. So we Stop don't... the boats. <laughs> Not quite, but yes. Um, <laughs> Not kidding. I'm kidding. No, no, all good. Um, yeah, I've, so you yeah, went through the Danish church and that sort of thing, but do I go to church every week? No. Do I have a value system and a connection to God myself? Yeah, I, I think I do, but it's not something that I wear on my sleeve or, you know, you won't see me in church every Christmas, let alone every week. Sure. What challenges you? Sorry, I have to just stop and think there for a second. These questions are really, really hard, people. Be, be aware. Um, no, look, I think for me it's about trying to meet a standard that we kind of set, if we're talking about, again, I can't bring it back to the work context because um, I, I kind of see Twitter as half work, half connection to peers in the media and to readers mm. and that kind of thing. Um I think from Umbrella and for me within Umbrella, it's around innovation and trying to do something different. Um, so I, for background, I was at the Australian, I was at the Daily Telegraph and 2GB before that. Um, and at Umbrella, I see us kind of at the cutting edge of trying to reinvent the digital model. We spend a lot of time writing about it, but we also try and, you know, do do that within our own business. And I think, you know, we're building a team here where we, where we are trying to do something different within the way we cover media and hopefully, you know, provide the readers something. And I think that to me is always the challenge because it's always trying to do, you know, at the Australian, it was great. You file once a week and, and, and a bit online, but you, you wasn't, you know, every day having to come up with four or five stories. There are days where, you know, before the newsletter is done, I can write two and a half thousand words and, you know, that's really, really challenging at times. So yeah. I think it's about trying to meet the insatiable beast that is online and do that well and do that in a way that's, really a value add for readers and for the industry. What has been uh, a moment for you while at Mumbrella that has been uh, a really significant either shift where, you know, you and Mumbrella have been critical in in the media landscape or something that you've been a part of that um, has been significant? Um, Oh, God. Um, I think the biggest story we've broken or the one that I've kind of really had to ride the wave on, we had, there was a big um, scandal within the advertising agencies earlier this year involving an agency mm-hmm. called Mediacom, and we broke that story, um, and that was really significant, and it was interesting because we led the coverage, I'd argue we led the coverage through most of um, that story, and so it was the Australian and, and the Financial Review following us in that coverage, um, and that's the first time I've really seen a story where we've absolutely had the right sources and led the story on. Um, and that was, you know, like uh, more than 10 people departed for various reasons, not directly related. They, they said not directly related to that scandal, and I don't dispute that, but in the mm. wake of it, it was certainly a, a major story within the industry and certainly a space there. Um, more broadly, I think it's just amazing to watch all of these traditional business models getting crunched by digital and in, there's destruction, but there's also rebuilding. The problem is the yes. rebuilding is not coming anywhere near as fast as the destruction. And so, you know, revolutions are characterized by heads on pikes and, you know, whether it's in 
print, whether it's in TV increasingly, also in radio, you know, all of these models are being challenged by the emergence of digital and we're trying to, the industry is trying to grapple its heads around that. So are we and trying to provide discussion about, you know, revenues only going one way. I was looking at the figures today um, or early in the week. And so newspapers, when I left the Oz back in 2012, they were about $90 million revenue per month for newspapers. Now it's down to about 50, you know, follow yeah. that trajectory down. Um, it's really scary that um, it won't be the print circulation that killed, kills newspapers it could well be the the revenue struggle instead and that's really scary and challenging because newspapers you know do a really important role in journalism for all media and we want to talk about ways that you know the industry can survive and 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 prosper but at the same time it's really challenging i think you see that throughout the media that people are trying to grapple their heads around it we're trying to grapple our heads around it and if there's one story that we're telling it feels a lot like that one are paywalls the answer? <laughs> yes and no, depending on the outlet. Um, mm-hmm. So I wrote a piece. I, I went to INMA, the Congress of Newspapers, last uh, started this year in May, and it was fascinating to see they actually polled the room for who's got paywalls and who thinks they're working, and it was really interesting that of, you know, 300 top global newspaper executives, there were very few people putting their hands up. It was the New York Times, it was the Wall Street Journal, it was the Financial Times. You know, here it would be the likes of the Australian. I would note Fairfax and News Corp were both in the room. I didn't see their hands up. They may have left. I don't know. But it's it's definitely interesting. I mean, places like the Australian, you know, full declaration, I worked there. Um, I helped them develop their strategy in the media section um, for digital, you know, and that's all newspaper that can make it work because it's a niche audience and it's, it has built a successful subscriber base. The challenge will be, can that you know digital revenues sustain a newsroom of 100 people? I'd argue that that would be really challenging. Now, News Corp would say it's willing to wear a certain amount of loss on certain publications. Great. Mm. It's still going to be a challenge because for a lot of publications, they're not willing to do that. And therefore, it, it challenges the whole media dynamic you know you see all the competition coming into australia um from buzzfeed from daily mail from huffington post um etc and you know all these of the guardian um all these guys you know really fundamentally challenge the business model and make it harder for the australian guys because you know when, when you look at what the likes of youtube or guardian or whatever are doing these are global plays they're trying to capture the global audience um, when i was in new york i saw a presentation by the new york times and in a one-hour presentation they didn't mention the word print once and i went and talked to the ceo afterwards and i'm like why and he's like why well, I, I only i emphasize only sell a million copies of the newspaper uh, i have 90 million people who visit my website each month which one am i going to gear to i mean and that's the type Gosh. of courageous you know business leadership you need but at the same time you have to recognize that the cpm so the the revenue per per user is a lot less in digital than it is in print and that's fundamentally what's challenging everybody that's that's really significant shift in in mindset isn't it it is and you know i I enjoy talking about that because i think you know we we have to challenge it and we have to kind of embrace digital and find new ways but at the same time it is really hard and i totally understand the mentality that says look you know we still have substantial print businesses let's not cannibalize them right because they can't afford to the challenge is to try and you know embrace digital while not cutting off your nose to spite your face because if you do it too quickly too too fast um you know there could be no business to save What's the most exciting or dangerous thing you've ever done? 
<laughs> um, my brother, so I've got two half-brothers in Denmark, and one of them is a dog trainer, um, and he trains German Shepherds for the Danish Army. And when Excellent. I was there back in 2012, he made me get into the suit and get attacked <gasps> by a German Shepherd. This 30 kilo, I'm a big guy, I'd be, you know, 100 kilos, and he, this 30 kilo German Shepherd running up behind me literally took me out by grabbing my arm, and I literally flew in the air. And literally got put on the ground by this German Shepherd, and it was the scariest, most exhilarating slash frightening thing I have ever done, and I will never, never do it again. That's amazing. There are photos on the internet somewhere. I believe my friends have certainly tweeted them and Facebooked them. Wow. Would you int- would you ever intentionally put yourself in danger, however measured, for thrill? No, I'm 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 a big wuss when it comes to heights and all kinds of things. So you're never going to see me diving. Like I only did it with my brother, and he wanted mm. me to do it. And I was like, oh, I really don't want to get in the suit and then get attacked by this German Shepherd. I mean, it was it, it was it, you knew you were safe, and so it was exhilarating. But it's still, you know, when when you've got a German Shepherd growl, growling at you and just wants a piece of you, and they're just trained to attack. And the the amazing thing is, like this dog lives with my brother's family and. I've got young nieces and nephews who it is adorable with and so sweet and would never attack them. But you mm. give it the command and suddenly, you know, it switches on and attacks you and you're like, this thing's a vicious, vicious, you know, weapon. And so, yeah, it, it was one of the most incredible things I've ever done in my life. And no, I'd never do anything like it again. <laughs> you know, you do that once and that's it. No bungee jumping for me. <laughs> what happened the last time your heart was broken? Oh, um, yeah, I, I had a university romance that was, um, intense. Um, aren't they all? They are, but, um, we were engaged and that broke up. Wow. Um, that was, that was a bit messy. Um, and that took me a while to recover from. Um, actually that was right around when I kind of finished the politics degree and, and threw myself Mm. into, um, Journalism. So, yeah, um, I've got a partner now. Been together six months or so. And, yeah, it's semi-serious. I don't know if they're listening, so I'm just going to not talk too much about that. But, um, yeah, no, hmm. it, it, it's good to have other things outside of work. The nature of journalism is um, that can be all-consuming and it's nice to – they're not in the media or anything. And I dated, like, other journalists for a while and the challenge of being a media writer, dating another journalist, just they always do this thing of, you know, we're off the record and you're like, I'm after many things from this. A, a story isn't one of them, you know. like <laughs> You know, I, I can switch off. You know, I spend most of my time as a media writer off the record because, you know, you have to do that. Um, you're not always looking for a story. You're looking for context and background. Um but yes, so does that answer the love question without really answering it? Yeah, that's fine. I'm comfortable <laughs> with you sharing as much or as little as you're comfortable with, Nick. Thank you. <laughs> no, all good, and I didn't, all good. I didn't mean to sound incredulous before uh, in that people have intense relationships. Um, however, being engaged at university uh, always spins me out, the sheer notion of it. It does. And at the same time, I look back on it and go, you know, unless you've really had your heart broken, I don't actually think you can really, you know, be in a proper relationship. And yes, that time around, I had my heart broken properly. What do you think is the fate of free-to-air TV? I'm not going to be bold enough to predict 
what will happen to TV, except that I think like most media, it will evolve in some way, shape or form, right? Mm-hmm. Like you already see the fact that increasingly, and what's interesting about Netflix is a ton of people going on it and loving it and all of that. If we leave that aside, I think what's interesting is it's connect, getting people to connect their TVs to computers and to the internet. So you just, you're changing the nature of TV. It's not coming from terrestrial yes. broadcast but that people are opening themselves up to AVOD services, be it iView, be it, you know, Plus 7, be it SPS On Demand or 10Play and all of that. Um, so you, I think what you're seeing is the shift from linear program TV to on-demand viewing. And it's the same for radio. It's the same for people don't want to be told what to continue. They want the option. Why wouldn't you? And so I think it's more around that. The challenge is around, okay, how do you eventize TV? How do you bring mass audiences at the one time? And that's why you see, you know, the growth of reality TV. You see event TV, television, because increasingly it's only sport and particular programs that really bring those big audiences. And advertisers still want, you know, 2 million people plus. They still want those mass. Mm-hmm. And it's just really, really hard to get that. What's the best show you've seen this year? I'm pretty um, – halfway through it, so um, I've, I've enjoyed the Peter Allen stuff yes. um, from from Seven this year. I thought that's done really well if you're talking about an Australian program. As I said, I'm also a massive political nerd, so I'll be honest that you know I love Netflix and, and, and in particular House of Cards, even though mm. I'll be honest, just a little disappointed by the last season and I really can't wait for the next season because we've seen – Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, turn off now. But basically, oh, it's 12 months, Nick, nearly. Come all right, on, I, people, I, if I, they I, haven't caught I, up by now. I, I, I want to, you know, I want to see the fall. We've seen him become president. We've seen all of that through. You now need to see Kevin Spacey go down, and I really, really want to see that. And, and surely his wife will be his undoing in that regard, yes? I don't know. Uh, you would hope so, but, you know, I think it'll be really interesting to see. Because that was the, the, the pivotal moment, I think, the entire season. You're right, it was a, a little bit... Kludgy. We hmm. saw stuff that, you know, nar- narrative stuff that had to be delivered, had to be built up. If you watch the final episode of this third season and look back, you go, okay, everything that happened built to that moment where she left. Yeah. Look, it, it's definitely interesting. I think it's some of the best television I've seen throughout. You know, I was a huge West Wing nerd and all of that. You know, hmm. I like intelligent drama that's really, you know, really well written, really well crafted and, and pushed through. And you're just like, okay, give it to me. Like you, you've led it all the way up. Now, how how is he going to come undone? So I'm really looking forward to the next season of that. And also just because, you know, the scale of that drama, I mean, it costs $250 million. You don't see that anywhere in Australia. So it, it, the one good thing is you do see that. I don't know if you've seen Narcos on Netflix. Mm, I, I yes. think that's also really well done and really, you know, good storytelling. And that, that's one of the interesting things. You know, these, these SVOD services have big libraries and a lot of it's the stuff that you never would have picked up at the DVD store. But then they do have those big quality dramas that are really good and really engaging. I rewatched Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure the other night on Netflix. Well, this is the thing, right? You can go back and, and find anything. I've suddenly started getting into all the documentaries just because, again, I'm a, a mm. huge nerd and I'm like, oh, I'm going to start looking at animal docos and stuff. And it's just, you know, really interesting things. Or given my Danish roots, I'm like, oh, Viking documentary. Let's watch that. <laughs> There's a, a really confronting documentary on Netflix about the rise of I guess air quotes, amateur porn stars, mm. uh, young young girls who are pitching themselves, using social media, doing all of that sort of stuff and like burning out 
is the best way I could I could put it at twenty three, or going on to a career where they're very happy in porn and doing all that sort of stuff. It's just, it's not explicit, um, it, but it's very very confronting. Yeah, it's just, um, it's just incredible the different like all the different things you get in these services that you can find. You know, pretty much anything you want, and for you know, ten. $10 a month. Um, I, one of the things that you're asking about my predictions about TV, I would say I think pay TV is increasingly challenged because, you know, I think mm. there's a lot of people looking at it and going, why would I pay $100 a month when I can buy all three SVOD services for $30 a month? And I think that's really where yeah. they do struggle. And and interesting that this week, podcast recording time, that uh, Foxtel have uh, been pointed at and suggested that they were inflating their subscription numbers by including their presto, their, their subscription video service numbers into their figures. We've been really hard on them on that because we think it's really unfair and misleading to kind of mm. include a $10 oh, service where the profit margin is somewhere between $0.10 cents and $0.50 cents depending on the scale. Um, mm. Whereas, you know, you make if, if, you, if you've got your bundle and you've got your home phone, your internet and your um, Foxtel with them, they're making, you know, $30, $40 per month off you. And that's a much higher margin service than, you know, SVOD is. So there's a huge difference between Presto and Foxtel. And our position really has become that Pre- Foxtel and Presto need to at least tell us what percentage it is so that we understand, you know, particularly how well Foxtel and PayTV is doing because increasingly the signs from the market are that they are starting to struggle to really grow penetration despite having mm. cut their prices and um, done an $80 million marketing campaign. Mm. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't necessarily want them to go belly up because they still produce some of the best drama that I've seen and get some of the premium US drama that I like watching. Well, I think, um, you know, PayTV has a huge role to play in the Australian media, but it's, it can't not acknowledge the challenges structurally the sector faces. And that's really where, you know, our, our argument is that, you know, we need to know how well PayTV is doing. Certainly, you know, a lot of what we do is reflect the advertisers and PayTV represents a growing portion of the TV ad budget. You know, I think last, mm. last, literally last month they were up 10 or 15% because people are putting more money to pay TV because they know what that audience is. They know how to get it. Yes. Um, MCN, their sales house has done a really good job on the data piece in terms of really telling advertisers who they're advertising to. But that's within the context of we need to know how many people are actually subscribing and who that, like what, what value share they represent in terms of the value commercially to them. Yeah. What reality TV show would you love to star in? <laughs> I'd, oh, oh, that's a hard one. I, 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 I'm an old fan of the old Survivor format just because I love the politics mm. behind it. You know, the intricacy yes. of really, you know, getting to understand all the people and how you, you know, make sure you don't get voted off the island at the same time. I'm such an introvert that I think it, I, after about two weeks, I'd just be like, you know what, everyone just vote me off the island. I can't stand being around this many people all day who haven't showered so you know just put me off please so i can go and you know lay up in the luxury you know caravan they've got on the island until the season finale i'm done (laughs) what about you steve what would you do uh, in that situation, look, I'd certainly try and hang in there as long as I could. I'm, I love the the nature of the game. I I hate. Look, I've gotten so old now that it's beyond the point of me wanting to be competitive necessarily. I would just love to be there to try and pull some strings, last as long as I can, just on the fringes, manipulating what I could because I know I'm not going to win. It doesn't matter what happens. 
I mean, I'd like to think I'd go in there and be a nice guy and that that would be, you know, the best result. It but works out that way. No, you the nice guys are done in the first five to six yeah. with a, a couple of exceptions, Rupert being one. That's exactly the case. Although the other thing, I, I think after five years of being a media writer, I now know how much they manipulate those TV shows. And I'm just like, yeah. oh, I, I couldn't perform like a seal for a TV show. I don't, I don't think I'd ever do that. Also, you have watched yeah, Unreal, haven't you? Exactly, you're right. And you're just there going, you know, and I, I've talked to EPs of some of the shows and, 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 you, and, you, and you just see how heavily constructed they are and particularly, you know, things like My Kitchen Rules and that where they're mm. so dramatised and you're like, I really don't think there's going to be that much of an issue with you bake the souffle for 40 minutes and we're fine and they have to inject Oh, stop telling drama. me about it. God and damn it. And you're like, it's not that hard. It's really not. Oh, just don't tell me about everything. Exactly. Just don't tell me what I can see you doing. I don't care. Exactly, exactly. If I want the recipe, I'll get it online or buy the book. <laughs> this is the challenge. But at the same time, you know, these shows do really well and people get really into them. So they're obviously doing something right. Oh, now I'm adding the coconut water brand label out. Of course. What are you going to achieve in the next 12 months, Nick? <laughs> Again, these questions are hard. He doesn't warn you beforehand. Um, <laughs> evil. Um, look, I think a lot of it for us is kind of we're at a point now where we certainly claim to be the biggest media and marketing website. I think the auditing shows that. So for our, us, our place in, in, in the landscape is really around continuing to drive a media discussion. You know, from my side as deputy editor at Mumbrella, I really want to keep driving that media discussion, keep pushing. I don't want to push digital, but I want to push a discussion around digital models and how we, you know, address the revenue challenge that the sector faces in basically every media. Um, mm. That gives me more than enough to do. Um, the, and there's stuff around that you'll see we've written recently around transparency and the fact that, you know, not, not all is what it seems in the digital space and we want to keep driving that discussion. You know, from my side, I wake up, up every day wanting to, you know, tell interesting stories and try to cover a $12 billion industry the best I can. Um, if I do that well for another 12 months, I'd be very happy. Well, Nick, you're certainly doing a great job so far. And look, thank you so much for the things that you have shared with us today. Please know that you are highly valued and what you've said is very important. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure, Steve. Very clearly you're on Twitter, Nick. What yes. other social media accounts do you want to admit to? <laughs> It's actually really simple for me. It's really just Facebook, which I can consider private. I know a lot of journalists these days are creating their own branded Facebook page and it just seems too weird for me. I've got LinkedIn, which again is more of a professional tool because, you know, we do a lot of kind of the corporate side of things and mm. as a database of who's where and what, it's actually really important for us, particularly on the advertising side. But those three are really the only three, mainly because I can't get my head around anything else. I have a Google Plus account that I've never used, but I don't think anyone else has either. Um, and that's really it. <laughs> Is it I, I, I want to get onto Wicker, but only because Malcolm Turnbull's there and it just seems like the thing, you know, that, but it seems dangerous. I, I, I have Snapchat, but I can't seem to work it. And I feel really old even just saying that, but I think it's a under 22s thing. I think I'm, I'm 30 years old now and it just can't work it. So, yeah. That's How me. good. How good would it be to accidentally somehow come into Malcolm's um, Wicker uh, circle? that all of a sudden you start receiving messages that he sends out to his a, core team. A colleague, um, not from here, but someone I, I'd worked with previously, told me that they found him on Wicker 
um, and tried to message him and it just didn't, they got no reply. And I just thought, I love that you're spamming. So then communications minister just going, here's a message on Wicker. And it's like, I presume he's probably changed his settings since then. Oh, would he, yes. I wonder what the, uh, uh, the the people who are concerned with the Prime Minister's security make of it. Well, yeah, now, and that, I don't know. That, that's an interesting question. It's like it's like the case with um, Barack Obama where they wouldn't give him a BlackBerry for a really long time. Um, but, yeah, it's always interesting. One of the other things I love is just the, the, the US political race at the moment because, you know, anything Donald Trump-related is just so entertaining. <laughs> that to me is, like, you know, popcorn, gold. Like all clowns, though, they overstay their welcome. Which I think is happening right now. But isn't it going to be fun to watch the, the, the clown kind of blow up and, and all of that kind of go to hell as the real contenders come through? This has been Humans of Twitter, and I can confirm that at Nick Christensen is indeed human. Good to be with you, Steve. Thanks so much for the time.